this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today, in honor of Labor Day, we wanted to take a look back at the history of the labor movement here, especially in the United States, as it relates to women. And what I have loved learning in preparation for today's episode is that women are not only a huge part of where the labor organizing movement is headed in the United States, but also an instrumental part of labor's past. And so I'm really excited, Bridget, to talk this through with you, um, because I know you've at one point mentioned that you were a part of a union yourself, right? I was. Um, I was a part of a labor union um, for freelancers called the Freelancers Union. Shout out to them. Instrumental during my time as a freelancer. I don't think I would have been able to navigate getting things like healthcare if not for them. So shout out to the Freelancers Union. Awesome. And I think it's important, you know, we talk a lot on this show about career stuff and and work relations today and just how fraught companies and employee-employer relationships can really be today, especially when we were talking through things like the gig economy and its impact on gender equality, uh, issues like equal pay. The list goes on. And Around Labor Day every September, it's important to not forget just how significant the movement for workers' rights has been in setting the standard for what we deem essential and expected for basic human rights of working class people and working people. That's so true. I think it's easy to think of Labor Day as that holiday that marks when your kids have to go back to school or (laughs) there's going to be a big sale on tires, so buy tires (laughs) or whatever. Um, But really, Labor Day highlights these things that we think of as integral parts of how we work as Americans, things that we we love and that we don't want taken away. And so it's really important to highlight how important these things have been. I'm talking about things like the five-day work week and weekends. Who doesn't enjoy a good weekend? <laughs> um, I know not everybody has the luxury of having weekends, particularly if you are in a, at a service job where you don't get Saturdays and Sundays off as a given. Maybe you get Tuesdays and Thursdays off or something like that. Um, the eight-hour workday, you know, this idea of Eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of what you will. Um, this idea that you don't just have to work yourself to death and that's okay. Mm. Um, safer working conditions, making sure that you're not going into a workplace that's unsafe or going to get you hurt or killed. In fact, one of the practices that I was horrified to find out is uh, that used to be normal in back in the Industrial Revolution era when we were packing people into factories was in order to keep uh, employer employees from taking too many unsanctioned, non-sanctioned breaks, they would lock the doors and lock workers into the factory. And that changed after a factory fire combined with those locked doors cr- led to a situation of complete and total horror and uh, a tragic situation that was the impetus for uh, the labor organizers there to demand safer and fairer working conditions that didn't put workers' lives at risk. So really, these are basic rights uh, to be able to know that you're going to go to work and be safe and be protected as a worker who is a human being and deserves to have that freedom and have that safety as a basic expectation. And these things were hard fought. People lost their lives fighting for these protections. And it's so important to lift that up and really 
protect them and make sure that we honor the fact that our foremothers and forefathers, they fought for this stuff. And it's important to make noise that we keep it and that we protect it. Exactly. And things that we take for granted now, like minimum wage laws or child labor laws not being a thing, like we can't have six-year-olds changing thimbles in our factories anymore. That's all thanks to the labor movement. So regardless of, of what, what you feel about labor unions, which I think of the labor movement and labor unions sometimes as two different things or one that fits into the other. Um, these are these are protections for working people that companies and corporations were not going to volunteer. Okay, these were hard fought battles. So in starting this conversation and thinking about how those battles were really won, let's take it back. I'd like to go back to the beginning of early, early women who stood out in the earliest part of labor organizing here in the United States. You know, the roots of women's involvement in the labor movement were formed during the Reconstruction era following the Civil War. So it was really during that era when people were moving to cities because of the Industrial Revolution and innovations that were creating specialized workforces uh, where... You know, women's work really did move out of the private sector into the public sphere for the first time in a large way. And again, we're not talking about the Betty Drapers of the world. We're not talking about the sort of middle class housewife, the white middle class housewife who is still on the whole being a full time homemaker. But really, there were a lot of working class people uh, women and women of color who made up 18% of the non-agricultural workforce as of 1900. So 18% is not 50%, but it's still, that's a significant amount of women. That's a good chunk. And I also think it's important to note that we're talking about work like seamstresses and working in textile mills and laundry, still work that's considered sort of segregated from men's work, but driving into the workforce in these um, in these kinds of ways. Exactly. So even though they were working to create the same kind of end products, women's work was still very segregated from the men who were doing the more industrial type um, machining and riveting. You know, all the sort of um, metal work and things were very much more dominated by men at the time still. Um, so back in 1869, that's when the first National Women's Labor Union was formed in the United States. And it originated in Lynn, Massachusetts. So shout out to, what is that, the Bay State? Yeah. So in Massachusetts, um, that's where women came together to form the first National Women's Labor Union known as the Daughters of St. Crispin, which was actually a spinoff of the Knights of St. Crispin, which I find very interesting. Talk about internalized patriarchy and um, benevolent sexism, they had to classify themselves as daughters. Yeah, daughters. To be warranting of protection. Because wouldn't, what's a, fe- what's a female word for knight? I don't know. I'm pretty sure Joan of Arc was a knight. Yeah. Side note, it's interesting how gendered <laughs> the, our, our language is where, you know, daughters versus knights, you know, what's the female version of this or that? It's interesting how it's not just an ungendered thing. Even in the name of their union, it sort of goes back to highlighting their status as women. Well, and it's one is much more patronizing. And oh, definitely. Infantilizing than the other. I mean, would you rather be a daughter or a knight? Right. Exactly. 
maybe some knights are somebody's daughters too. But that's a whole other thing. So I I just wanted to highlight that because I thought it was significant. But Daughters of St. Crispin were a spinoff of the Knights of St. Crispin, um, which was a cobbler's union. So these were shoemakers. So we're talking way early. This is even really pre-pre-industrial. And both of those unions were named in honor of the patron saint of cobblers. Um, and what's interesting here is that this is the first national women's labor union, which they had to create separately because the men weren't exactly welcoming women into their union. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and they, what was their first battle? What was their first battle that we still seem to be talking about today? Equal pay. It's absurd to me that as women, we are still fighting this battle that our, our grandmothers and our grandmothers' grandmothers fought for equal pay for their, for equal work. And here we are in 2017 still fighting for it. So, um, the daughters of St. Crispin, they sought the same equal pay as their male counterparts, staging successful protests in 1860 and later again in 1872. The group dismantled in 1873 and many of them ended up combining with the, informing the Knights of Labor, which basically brought the male labor union and the female labor union together. This was the first union that was formed to really activate and engage women in particular in the United States. So, you know, this is some, this is a battle. Equal pay is something we've been fighting now for a long time, uh, since 1869. And with mixed success, they were successful, which is great to hear. Um, but there was also one woman's story that really stood out to me that I want to dive deep into for a second here. In this industrial age, in this Civil War construction era, as all of these huge changes are sweeping the nation, and as you might recall from our history books in high school or middle school, this is also during the era of monopolies forming for the first big time in a huge way and setting us up for the Great Depression. So in the early 1900s, with all of these sweeping economic, socioeconomic changes happening in the labor force, one woman's story really stood out to me who became very much active and engaged and involved in the labor movement and later in the socialist um, movement in the United States. And that woman is named Lucy Parsons. Now, Lucy Parsons is not the kind of person you picture when you think of labor union organizer, which still today has a very masculine older white dude reputation if if am i alone in that i don't think you're alone in it i would say definitely masculine yeah even even the non-white figures you think of as integral to the labor movement are mostly men true women that you think of even even if they're these like total badasses a la lucy parsons don't you don't see them on t-shirts or on posters and things like that totally totally when this woman needs to be on a t-shirt oh i'm googling images (laughs) of her now to put them on a shirt yeah get get your lucy parsons uh organizer t-shirt ready because this woman was born in texas and there's a little bit of historical controversy over her heritage some people say that she was definitely born the daughter of slaves in the deep south um she in many ways denied her African-American heritage throughout the course of her life, um, potentially for reasons related to wanting to avoid overt racism and discrimination, um, and instead identified more prominently with her Native American heritage and Mexican ancestry. So like many of us in, in the United States, she has a very 
diverse heritage that she draws upon. Throughout the years, she actually used different surnames, different last names to sort of shield her identity, play up different parts of her ancestry. Um, but she ended up marrying a white dude from Texas, didn't she be? <laughs> she did. And so it's important to note that their marriage was illegal since he was white. Um, they had to flee to Chicago to avoid Jim Crow era persecution. Albert sounds like a real badass himself. He wrote for the Chicago Times during the Great Depression and was part of the socialist and anarchist ideology coming to the USA. Um, but, side note, uh, Lucy was actually considered to be more, quote-unquote, dangerous than her mm-hmm. husband because she was a woman. Exactly. So Albert and Lucy Parsons created quite a name for themselves upon arrival in Chicago. Now, this is at peak... Great Depression times. So the fact that Albert had a job writing for the newspaper, the Chicago Times, um, was sort of a godsend in a lot of ways. So the fact that he ended up losing his job and being blacklisted from being involved in any journalistic practices later on because of his radical political organizing goes to show you just how important these fights were to Lucy and Albert because they were willing to risk losing their livelihood in the Great Depression to stand up for what they thought was wrong, which is how working people were being treated. So this all came to a head uh, during a nationwide strike that took place uh, related to the ironworkers on the Baltimore, Ohio rail line. So national railroads um, were trying to reduce wages and basically just cut wages for workers for no other reason other than they could. And um, it was the Great Depression, so they they could take advantage of that. Uh, and they weren't, and labor organizers like Lucy and Albert weren't having it. So they joined the strike. They joined the sort of labor organizers as it all came to a head in Chicago. And Albert Parsons ended up addressing crowds of something like 25,000 people who were there present during riots and, and picket lines and striking against the Baltimore, Ohio railroads. And this is really what put Albert Parsons at the forefront of what was deemed the anarchist movement in Chicago. I love that. Um, I also love how this trajectory really put Lucy at the forefront of these movements, too. Um, after her husband was fired, she opened a dress shop to support her family and together with her friend Lizzie Swank began hosting meetings for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And she sort of became became more and more involved in this union. She started writing for The Socialist, The Alarm. These are these great anarchist publications, so it was clearly sort of getting more more and more entrenched in all of this socialist anarchist ideology a la myself back when I was 15. <laughs> this was some hardcore stuff. Yeah, she was really... I just... I, I feel like I'm channeling her in a kind of way because <laughs> starting to write for these sort of like super lefty publications and getting involved in hosting meetings, that is so... What you think of when you think of someone becoming sort of activated in their in their political ideology. Definitely. I mean, and and she was no doubt a radical. They both were. And basically, when she started writing, Lucy Parsons was advocating and making the case that only violent direct action or threat of such action would win the demands of workers. So she was. You know, it could be said that she was inciting violence, and that's part of the reason why the police force, who at the time were um, really freaking out about the influence of socialism in the United States and 
really freaking out over how to manage mass worker strikes that were occurring as a result of the Great Depression and as a result of these monopolies trying to uh, squeeze every last dime out of their profit margins that they could. Um, she was freaking out the police force because she was not just a woman who refused to, you know, stay stay in the kitchen at home with and tend to her children, but she was writing these radical, sometimes like violent uh, proclamations of workers uprising in the newspaper. I, what I think is so fascinating about that that aspect of her life is I think that we think of people who advocate for social change, we think of them, when we think of them advocating for nonviolence and peaceful resistance, they sort of get this elevated status. But we forget that a lot of women in history were the ones advocating for arming yourself, for a violent revolution, for threats of violence if it called for that. I'm not saying that violence is a good thing or that we should be advocating for that or, you know, I, I think it's important to note that we think of men as the ones who were driving, you know, calls for violence and armed resistance when in fact in history a lot of women have done the same yeah but it doesn't there's like no space in our brains to hang that you know what i mean like there's it it so bucks the norm of what we've been taught to think of women as that it's i think it's hard to reconcile like where in our historical collective memory we can put women like lucy parsons right like where did like she just so doesn't align with everything we expect from women especially in her time we think of women as peaceful, nonviolent peacemakers finding a way through without sort of ruffling too many feathers. But that could not be further from the actual historical reality that women faced. True. And when you're watching, you know, mass starvation hit the nation, when you're watching something like the Great Depression take hold and companies are still using six-year-old kids to change the bobbins in their huge machines and people are dying because they were locked into the factory that caught on fire because, God forbid, they should take a break. You know, it's it's I can understand where violent revolution would become a tactic because it's not like there wasn't blood on the hands of corporations. That's really what these folks were thinking at the time. And I completely understand that. And it all, it all got more violent, didn't it? So. Yeah. It got, it got so much more violent. I completely agree. I think that I'm not someone who is, who thinks violence is never the answer. Right. I, I understand where, <laughs> yeah. where these, where these sentiments come from. So this did get more violent. So as things in Chicago hit a boiling point following the Baltimore, Ohio railroad general strike, um, you know, this was really all about worker protections as it came to eight-hour workdays and maintaining the current wages that they were at. So they were asking for, that was the critical demand here, the eight-hour workday, and standing up for wages that they had been historically paid. And this is when what's known as the Haymarket Uprising occurred, which was originally a peaceful, nonviolent gathering that even included the mayor of Chicago as being present, when basically workers after striking had come to Haymarket Square to gather peacefully, right, to demonstrate peacefully. And after the mayor left the square, the police didn't keep that nonviolent action up, and they say that there was a bomb hurled their way. So the police maintained that there was a bomb, someone in the crowd hurled at the police, but nobody knows to this day who exactly did it. And that's when things really got out of control. The police thought this happened and things really got violent. The police went on raids looking for any and all anarchists. And this, unfortunately, is where Lucy Parsons' husband, 
um, lost his life. Yeah. So he was brought in with five other known anarchists and, and labor organizers uh, and given what was deemed a really unfair trial um, that resulted in five of them being convicted as guilty for inciting violence. Three of them ended up being hanged, including Albert Parsons. Um, two went on to have serving long jail sentences. And actually, three of them never made it to their death sentence because one of them killed themselves. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And what's worse is that on her way to see her husband, Albert, for the last time, Lucy had her children in tow because they had kids. And they she was bringing them to see their father one last time before he was going to be hanged and she was identified and she had long been uh, stalked basically and, and monitored by the police because of her connections to Albert and so when she showed up to wish her husband a final farewell the police arrested her and detained her stripped her down and left her in a jail cell naked with her children until after the hanging was over. So she didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. And that's so horrible to me because it's like a final way of dehumanizing her and robbing her of her humanity. Exactly. It's not enough that her husband is being killed. It's not enough that all of this is happening. They have to deny her that final last, you know, thing that all humans would want is to say goodbye to their loved one. Right. It was a total power move. And it just goes to show you how ugly the labor movement fights have been historically. These are not fights. I mean, fighting for an eight-hour workday is what led to all of this violence. So just knowing that this is where some of our basic rights around workers' rights in the United States come from, it gives me a lot of pause. And then knowing beyond that people like Lucy Parsons, of which there are many, by the way, there are many incredible women in the labor, early labor movement history books that just do not get talked about enough. But Lucy went on for decades more as a speaker, as a writer. She became more involved in the socialist movement in the United States and in the um, socialist party in the United States. I mean, she went on to continue to speak around issues relating to workers' rights and freedom of the press well into her 80s. So she made this her life's work and, you know, it cost her a lot along the way. And again, I think for me, when you I, I think back to our episode around the gig economy, when you think about how important and weighty and bloody and lethal these fights were, the fact that in 2017, we don't cherish the eight hour workday. We don't cherish what Lucy Parsons fought for. We're fine with maybe eroding that a little bit and sort of not we don't we don't think of it as precious and people lost their lives for it. And we're being sold to a like it's being sold as a as a gift or as a positive thing that you what is that poster from Fiverr? It was like you eat coffee for breakfast, you never sleep, you know, you always follow up on your follow up. Like that kind of culture of overwork is now being repackaged as a privilege. You're gonna die behind the desk. Isn't that great? <laughs> I think you're so one hundred percent right about that, Bridget. And I think it's time for us to take a quick break. Sound good? Sounds good. And when we come back, let's talk about a couple of notable women in the labor movement in more recent history. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And we're back. And we are talking about women in the labor movement, especially here in the United States 
And I want to zoom forward a little bit further now into the post-World War II era, because there were also a lot of women we would love to talk about in terms of the more modern era. So post-World War II, what was going on in, in terms of women in the workforce? Post-World War II, everything kind of changed with Rosie the Riveter. A lot of women who entered the workforce in droves for the first time, they weren't going back. There was no going back to the way things were before, and they were here to stay. And we talked earlier about how a lot of these women were joining sort of female-dominated workplaces that were still segregated from what you might think of as traditionally male spaces. But now those same women weren't joining what you might think of as traditionally male uh, workspaces, things like operating machinery, um, being mechanics, etc. And so women were really joining these fields uh a lot. And Rosie the Riveter is that famous sort of um, female archetype of we can do it, right? With her mechanic shirt rolled up, showing off her bicep, with that sort of hair tied up in a um, bandana. And what she really represented was how patriotic it was for women to fill in and contribute to the war effort through their labor outside of the home. And so this is when the sort of revolution of not just working class women, but also um, the Betty Drapers of the world starting to get more into the workforce outside of the homes. So this is really, you know, it's you once once that happened, it was impossible for that to be undone. Right. It just became part of the culture. And really, shout out to Rosie the Riveter for launching a million easy feminist Halloween costumes. (laughs) (laughs) Still true today. That's true. Have you ever been a Rosie the Riveter? I was. (laughs) Were you? I have. Yeah. (laughs) It's an easy game. I'm sure. How many of y'all were, if you were, tag us in some photos, because I'm sure a lot of y'all were. I'd love to see that on our Instagram. Um... But Rosie was a fictional character, right? So she was, she was sort of a, she was a symbol, an icon for women entering the workforce, like you said, into those otherwise traditionally male spaces. And what that meant was, like the unions that had been present for those male spaces, women were also entering sort of industries that had more labor organizing. And, during this time, women became much more involved in the labor rights movement. One of those women who we'd like to, once again, sort of zoom in on um, was heavily involved when it came to the National Farm Workers Association, right by his side throughout the entire uh, founding of the National Farm Workers Association was Dolores Huerta. And she ended up becoming, in 1965, the first female leader of the United Farm Workers, who combined forces to launch a very successful national boycott of California grapes. Because the workers, the farm workers who were um, really picking grapes in California and who were the, the labor force behind the entire California grape industry were not being paid what, what was equivalent to the national minimum wage. So that was their ba- basic demand. And Dolores Huerta was a huge part of the, the massive strike that she really started and led with Cesar Chavez. Something that I love about her story is that we really, even today, base a lot of what we know about labor organizing and, and political organizing in general from the United Farm Workers. Um, today, a lot of organizers go through training at Harvard University with Marshall Gans. Shout out to him. Did you go through that training? I was in that fellowship. Oh, tell, talk about it. Yes. 
Yeah, well, he talks about it because he actually was a Harvard dropout, Marshall Gans, who went to join Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta during the strike movement. And they were so successful because they were able to actually engage the public. So they were able to take uh, an issue related to paying farm workers a basic living wage, which is already on the books, right? This was like the minimum wage had already been established, but they were being skirted that basic human right or that basic worker's right um, through a few different loopholes. And what Marshall Gans always points to is the tactics that they engaged actually made it very easy for the average American consumer to understand how they could make a difference. And that's one of the basic lessons of organizing is tell me what I can do and why it's significant. So people started boycotting nationwide the buying of California grapes in the grocery store. That's so incredible because it really underscores the importance of storytelling and making people see what's at stake, making them feel it and see it and understand it in their bones, not just throwing a bunch of facts and figures about why they shouldn't do this or why they shouldn't do that, but really illustrating um, why, like, what's at stake here and how yeah. they're a part of it. And I just think it's so important to note that the, this is people are still benefiting from that in the political organizing space today. So this isn't just fights of yesteryear that it's good to talk about. If you are an organizer coming up right now in 2017, you are prob and you're doing it right. You yeah. have probably been, um, you know, been a student of this this theory of organizing, right? People, power, and change. That's the name of the course that I took with Marshall, and it was pretty profound. And it so reminds me of a lot of the things we talk about here, which is knowing where your dollars are going, right? Knowing the implication of what your dollars are going to support and how you as a consumer can have an impact. And the grape strike in the 1960s really made it clear how the average American consumer can stand up for workers' rights and stand up for their principles and stand up for the minimum wage through buying or not buying table grapes. And it's, it, yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up in that framing because we were just talking off air about how the same way a lot of folks, if you want to be like a good shopper, you maybe don't shop at Walmart because they, you know, fund all this bad stuff and it's bad for your community. The same way that that is happening now, that was happening then with grapes. So it was exactly people didn't buy table grapes because they didn't want to go to support awful things. Exactly. And this actually has a really happy ending to it, too, because Dolores Huerta ended up negotiating a contract between the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee and the Shenley Schlenly, it's kind of hard to pronounce, but Schlenly Wine Company, uh, making it the first time that workers successfully bargained with an agricultural enterprise. So these are workers who have historically been abused, right? These are workers who aren't always documented, who don't always have um, irreplaceable skills, right. right? These are workers who are really used and abused, and they did, in fact, bus in uh, workers from across national boundaries during the strike when the American farm workers were not, you know, picking grapes. So there were lots of tactics that were levied on both sides of this fight. So the fact that Dolores Huerta was able to successfully negotiate a contract and come to an agreement and and have that victory for working people on on her record and thanks to her hard work and the organizing work of so many others um, was a huge deal for workers in the fields across the country. 
So another thing I love about Huerta, who I could talk about all day, is that even now, as a woman in her 80s, she's not retreated. She's not shut up about this kind of stuff. She still <laughs> continues to be a badass civil rights and labor and immigrant activist today, well into her 80s. Um, I was lucky enough to, to meet her um, during my time on the Clinton campaign this past year. I've seen her speak, and she's amazing. And Again, she's just as fierce as she probably was in her in her youth. She still speaks with such a I mean, I, I have chills even just thinking about it. She still speaks with such intense fervor and she makes you feel like she is speaking just to you. She makes it so clear what's at stake. The way that she frames these stories and these fights, it it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. She's amazing. Amazing. I love it. And I love to hear how the women of the labor movement whose stories we've really delved into today have long careers of fighting on behalf of working people. And I know we we could go on for forever because there are so many great women in the labor movement. But one other woman who you just reminded me of who is still fighting hard on behalf of what she believes in is a little Supreme Court justice y'all might know as the notorious RBG. Notorious. <laughs> <laughs> and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as it turns out, has, we, we could do a whole episode on her and we probably should. should. That's something we should do. Um, but she can't be glossed over in thinking through the women of the labor movement here in the U.S. because she founded the Women's Rights Project a, a project of the ACLU that was focused specifically on fighting discrimination towards women. And that's still alive and kicking today. Yeah, that's still alive today. It's still a pretty active project of the ACLU. And, I mean, I was looking up the different kinds of fights they have been involved in at a, at a legislative and a legal level. It's massive. So definitely, if you're if you're interested in that, this could be a whole episode of the various fights and, and legal challenges that that project that mm. she started have done to stick up for women women employees. I love it. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about women today and how we are shaping the future of the American labor movement. We'll be right back. And we are back. And let's talk a little bit now about how women and labor are looking ahead to the future. So to bring this whole conversation into the modern day, it has to be noted that as of 2014, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, union membership represented only 11.1% of the workforce, which was down from 20.1% in 1983. And so when we think about the average American union member, that sort of demographic is starting to shift as the population of American work f- workers who are represented by a union shifts as well. Totally. So even as men's union membership is falling steeply, 45% of labor is women. And if these projections continue, we'll have a majority female labor movement pretty soon. Um, according to the Center for Economic and Policy Research, they predict that women will be the majority of unionized workers by 2025. So really, women, women of color are, are sort of the growing demographic of folks who have union representation. But just because the percentage of women making up the population of unionized workers is increasing, don't let the data confuse you because it's actually not the number of union members that's skyrocketing. Rather, because labor unions are representing a smaller and smaller proportion of the overall American workforce, 
and men are happen to be dropping out of labor unions at higher rates, women's percentage is increasing, but not necessarily the sheer numbers. So in 1985, just to give you sort of a perspective on this, nearly a quarter of working men were represented by unions. Now just 12.8% of them are, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Over the same time period, the percentage of women represented by unions also fell to 11.7% from only 15.9% in 1985. But there is one huge notable exception to this, which is nurses. The union, the National Nurses United, really stands out in its expansion. It's the largest union of nurses in the United States, and really they are this huge force to be reckoned with in labor. Um, it's run almost entirely by women and has a largely female membership. It's added 20,000 members since 2009 and expects to grow as the healthcare field continues to grow. Um, the Economist has called nurses, quote, the new auto workers because of their growing strength and willingness to fight cuts. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have nurses in your families, or maybe you're a nurse yourself, but I always thought that nurses, like, you do not mess with nurses. And I think you see that in um, the personality of nurses, I think, and you also see that in these fights. This nurses union is this massive, massive force of political power. Um, they are not a union that you want to tangle with. There are so many nurses, and nurses, unlike other professions, aren't so easily replaced. If you're a nurse, you have training, you have schooling, you have a real specialized field. And so I think these are people who are largely um, female-identified who know that they are not easily replaceable and they are ha- more than happy to roll up their sleeves and and engage in these really amazing fights. Definitely. And while public employee unions in states across the country, like Michigan and Wisconsin, these right-to-work states have been decimated by laws that are restricting their collective bargaining rights, the nurses were pushing bills in the California State House that eventually became law. So, meanwhile, the auto workers were agreeing to have some of their members' pay cut in half when it came to fighting Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was the governor (laughs) in California. Um, You know, Schwarzenegger was pushing to cut patient-to-staff ratios, and the National Nurses United fought back, and he eventually dropped it. So they beat, you know, a fight, a a basic wage and labor fight with the governor, and won. I love that. And I think that their their power and their presence is kind of proof that unions may not be on the way out. They might just look a little different than what we're used to. And I, I love that nurses are at the forefront of this fight because they really are talking about issues that we all should care about, which is our health. Right now, this union is at the forefront of the fight for single-payer health care in California, and I just love seeing them continuing to get into these amazing fights. Yeah. And it's also interesting to hear from the leadership, because the NNU is pretty hardcore in their tactics. Oh, yeah. And when hearing straight from their leadership what um, what they sort of turn to when talking about why it's easier for them to go to the mat and fight really hard is that they're not out for their own pay, right? They're not necessarily fighting for better pensions or wages. They're out for their own personal safety while on the job and the safety of their patients. Right, because if you go into a hospital, even if you're not a nurse, even if you don't care about labor, you don't want your nurse to have a zillion other patients that she has to worry about and be frazzled. Your health care is on the line. And exactly. really being able to tell that story, just like we were telling, talking about before, really being able to sell why that's a story that you should care about and be invested in is a great way to do it. 
Totally. And I think that tactic, the use of effective storytelling and impact, making clear like what the impact is for workers' rights is such a uh, thread that we've seen continue from successful labor fights all the way back in the Industrial Revolution through today. But one of the things that you mentioned briefly earlier, Bridget, really stood out to me, which is the tactics are changing. Some of the ways in which labor fights are being waged don't quite look the same anymore. And that can be said about strikes. A general strike like the one that led to the Haymarket uprising is not exactly viable today. I don't think of the American workforce is as willing to strike and picket as we might have used to have been. And instead, where the rise of unions and strikes might be on the decline, we have seen in very successfully executed labor disputes across the country that workers are forming instead smaller work site committees that basically use the expansive powers of the National Labor Relations Board, thank you, FDR, who set that up during his administration, to form these committees that really push for singular issues. So there were workers in New Mexico, uh, in Santa Fe in particular, that had a specific uh, issue around mandatory 5 a.m. work meetings that were held weekly, but nobody was being compensated for them. The fact that they were asked to be in at the office, at the, uh, I think it was a car wash, at, at their car wash at 9 a.m., but weren't allowed to clock in until 11 a.m., like, they were basically being underpaid and just totally not compensated for their time illegally. If they, if one person, if one worker had protested, if one worker had tried to fight on his or her behalf against the employer, they could have easily been fired and would have had less collective bargaining ability. But instead, they formed a small committee. They got in touch with a local organizing group, and they wrote a a letter as a small worksite committee. And because they did that as a collective, when they were all fired for doing that, they were able to go to the NLRB and take that employer to court. That employer ended up having to pay them back wages and hire them all back. Yes. And that's happened in lots of different work sites throughout Santa Fe because it spread like wildfire. It's this small example of using collective bargaining. Even if you're not in a union, you can still use the expansive powers of the National Labor Relations Board to basically form work site committees and use collective bargaining tactics even if you're not in what would look like as a measurable traditional labor movement. What's fascinating is that you actually find people doing that exact same thing, but they're doing it online. There's an amazing website called coworker.org where folks who maybe don't have traditional union representation can really band together and advocate for a specific cause. And right now, you're really seeing that with Starbucks employees. So Starbucks employees are not unionized, but coworker.org has been at the forefront of getting different Starbucks uh, employees and baristas to advocate for for changes in their work situation. And right now, there is a hugely successful campaign where a growing number of baristas are speaking out about the lack of company morale and chronic understaffing at Starbucks and things like having to make specialty drinks and the increased use of mobile ordering, where they're saying, hey, we're not able to give customers this relaxing, 
coffee experience that you want us to provide because you're not setting us up for success in terms of staffing. And so if you go to coworker.org, they have a petition from a barista, uh, Jamie Pratter, that now has 18,635 signatures trying to get Starbucks to change their staffing situation. Awesome. So I just love this idea of labor, organized labor, and and this kind of bargaining maybe just looking a little bit different than maybe it did during Huerta's day. Yes. And women are still at the forefront of it. Yes. So keeping in mind that if you are feeling like you have a grievance in your workplace, know that there are ways to band together, to fight back, to channel your inner Parsons or Huerta and you know, continue the legacy of being outspoken women who are standing up for working people. I think we need that now more than ever uh, in an environment where the traditional infrastructure of the labor movement might not cut it anymore, might not be doing what we need it to do. So whether it's coworker.org or forming us a work site committee or just knowing your rights and talking to the folks um, who can help b- you band together and collectively bargain or collectively organize I think it's important for us to continue to rise up and know that we have the power to do so as workers of the world. I'm about to start singing Hamilton right now. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, I want to hear from our listeners, Minty listeners. Tell us what you think about today's conversation. Uh, Tell us what are the women in the labor movement that really spoke to you the most? What other great women's stories should we dive deeper on? Because we know that women have played an instrumental role in labor movements here in the United States and, of course, in labor movements abroad as well. We can't wait to hear what you have to say, so send us a tweet at MomStuffPodcast. Tag us on your Rosie the Riveter Halloween costume or anything else you want to share on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And as always, we'd love to have your thoughts and feedback in our inbox at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. 